Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. morning. It's a little bit of a heavier uh, morning today, I think, for, for many of us. Um, and I didn't know that um, last year when I was given this weekend to preach and we were going to wrap up the series of essentials talking about the church. I didn't know that when I saw that date on the calendar the week before um, I wrote a message on the church. This report would come out from the Southern Baptist Convention, as Larry said, a, a convention we're associated and affiliated with, where, the, where there were over 700 accounts of abuse that were covered up, where women were vilified and mistreated and manipulated. And just um, how many of you, before you came into church this morning, heard of that report or, or saw it in the news or, or saw? Sometimes as a pastor, I don't know what is just like in my world um, and, and how much people are kind of following these kind of things. Um, it was a pretty devastating week, uh, honestly, in trying to write a sermon about the church. Um, <clears throat> where I am tired and worn out of stories like this. The tragedy is, the, the devastating thing is, this is not a unique story for the church. We've heard far too many tales of churches who have mistreated and abused and assaulted the people that they were supposed to shepherd into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm tired of the place that's supposed to be a, a place of healing being the place that is actually a place wounding people. I'm tired of stories of, of women who have been mistreated by the church, of adolescents who are supposed to be able to come to church and feel safe and know the goodness of God are instead introduced to some of the darkest parts of humanity. It was a frustrating week to think about what it means to talk about the church because the reality is for, for even people in this room, that's not just a report, that's part of our stories. Is there are women and children and, and even men who have been mistreated, abused, and assaulted by the place that they were supposed to encounter the presence of God. And to be honest with you as a pastor, even on my best days, there are many Sundays that I come here and I sit in the seats next to you and I worship with you. And in the back of my mind, I just question and wonder, is this really what the, the pinnacle of following Jesus is about? Coming together and singing some songs and hearing a, a mediocre TED Talk that's probably too long. I'm guilty of that. Is that really the, the pinnacle of what it means to follow Jesus? coming into a dark room, singing songs, hearing a talk, and then going about our lives. Is that what church is about? And then on top of that, it can not just only feel like this space where we just come and attend something weekly, but then you hear stories of abuse, and I just wonder, why bother? 
why bother with church? And that's as someone who is employed by a church and comes here regularly and, and strives to believe in the church. I don't know if you resonate with that. At best, I feel like I have a very tenuous relationship with the church at times. I can feel very frustrated about how the church responds to things going on in our culture. And I am beyond frustrated and done with churches that are harming and hurting people. And I grieve the ways that, that I might have even contributed to those things. And so today as we wrap up the series on essentials and we talk about the church, my goal is not to just um, give some theology about what the church is supposed to be or what the church is and what the church has been. I think today our purpose in coming together and talking about the church in light of the events that have happened over the last few weeks is, is to come together and examine a, a vision for what the church can be what Christ has called his church to be in this cultural moment. You see, because it's not just that the church is a space that, that I feel like often doesn't live up to the ideal of what Christ has called us to. I think we also find ourselves living in a moment where, where culture is shifting rapidly around us, where, where the things that we have always held to be true are changing and shifting at an incredibly rapid pace. And the challenge for the church is how do we live in this season in between where we have gone from, from a culture that has understood who we are and has, has believed many of the same things that we have believed to a culture that is rapidly changing and moving further and further away from who the church has been. And, and to be honest with you, as I see the shifts, part of me does not blame the people for leaving the church. I mean, I see the shifts and I think, of course you would leave. Look at who we are and what we do. And I can empathize. And yet I believe that Christ has called the church to something more. To be something more. That in this cultural moment, Christ has called this church, his church, his bride, to rediscover its identity and to be something more for a world that, that needs the church and needs the presence of God. And so today as we dive into the church, uh, I just want to let you know up front, there were two books that were really influential um, in what we're going to be talking about today. And if, if you're wanting to dive a little deeper, the two books that I would recommend are A Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders, and a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And we have both of them out in our bookstore. Um, but John Mark Comer, he starts this book, Live No Lies, by talking about the way that, that our culture has shifted rapidly um, and drastically over the last number of years. And, and some people would say that that started in the 60s. Some people would say that that started around 9-11. And wherever you mark the starting point of the shifts in our culture, these are kind of three shifts that he says, massive tectonic shifts that have taken place in our culture. And I think all of us feel these shifts on some level, but we're not quite sure what to name them. And so as we feel the shifting culture of our, 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 um, of our environment and, and the ways that they're responding to us as Christians, we kind of label it persecution. We, we feel these shifts and we think, oh man, we're being persecuted. 
But I don't think that's actually what is happening. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think John Mark Comer lays out these three shifts that, that names for me some of the things that I feel on a very deep level in our cultural moment. Um, that helps me identify some of the, the ways that I can feel kind of disoriented in our cultural moment. And so the three shifts that he lays out, um, these massive tectonic shifts in culture's relationship to Christianity, the first one is that we have gone from Christian being a majority in our culture to a minority in our culture. That, that every study done in the last 20 plus years is demonstrating that the church is rapidly hemorrhaging people. That, that people, especially young people, are leaving the church by the millions. And again, when I see the statistics, oftentimes it's hard for me to blame people for leaving. But in our cultural moment, we are moving from a, a culture where we were once understood and, and a lot of our beliefs were the majority held beliefs in our culture to now a place where we're often seen um, and understood to be a minority. Barna did a, a study just a few years ago in 2018, um, naming four kinds of exiles and four kinds of people that have relationship with the church. And what was startling to them was not just that 22% that of young believers, this is from people who are 18 to 29, 22% of them grew up with some sort of relationship with the church um, and then left. And so they were called the prodigals. 30% of um, people in that age range grew up with some sort of relationship with the church, but they identify as nomads or lapsed Christians. They don't really have any sort of a affiliation with the church anymore. They found 38% would consider themselves habitual churchgoers. They attend church at least once a month. But what was startling to them was that they found that only 10% of those surveyed were what they would identify as resilient disciples. And you might ask yourself, what is a resilient disciple? They had four categories to, to label a resilient disciple, and it was this, that they attend church regularly at least once a month, that they believe in the authority of Scripture, that they believe Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected, and that living out their faith should impact how they engage with the world. Those were the parameters. And what they have been finding is that even though people identify as believers or have some affiliation with church, the number of people that can readily identify with those four characteristics, the resilient disciples, is somewhere around 10% in the younger generation, and it's not that far ahead in the older generations. We have moved to a culture where Christianity is no longer the majority in our culture, but the minority. John Mark Comer goes on to say that the second tectonic shift that we see in Christianity and culture is that we've gone from a, a position of, of honor to a position of shame. And, and many of you have probably felt this over the last few um, years, but we have shifted over the, the last few years from a, a culture in Western civilization that for hundreds of years, that the leaders in society, politicians, artists, scientists, many of them, most of them, majority of them, resonated with Christian beliefs and identified as Christians. We were the leaders in many of these fields, and we had positions of honor. Being a pastor was, a, was considered something that was a, a position of honor. But in the last few years, we've shifted from a, a position of honor to a position of shame, where, where Christians are seen more as anti-intellectual and anti-science, and, and not without reason. And positions of, of leadership within the church, like pastors, where once we're respected, are now often seen as a, a position of shame 
And again, not without reason, when you think of the stories of abuse and the ways that that pastors and leaders in churches have manipulated and abused and misused and mistreated the people within their churches. And so our culture once held some sort of respect, even if they didn't believe in Christianity, they held some level of respect or honor for Christianity, and now it's seen in the light of shame. And the third tectonic shift, this massive shift that John Mark Homer lays out, is that we've gone from a culture of tolerance to a culture of exclusion. And again, many of you have felt this, but there's a growing number of people who see the worldview that Christians have not just as weird, but as dangerous to their worldview. And while Christianity isn't a monolith and we don't all hold the same beliefs and we have lots of nuances within our belief from those outside of our faith, They kind of just lump us together as the Christians or the evangelicals. And the things that are associated with us are seen as a threat to the secular view of human flourishing. And so when we think about these massive shifts and these ways that culture has shifted, even though we might think that we're experiencing some level of persecution, what what I think we're actually experiencing is a level of exclusion, of slander and stigma for what we believe. And this has led many leaders in the church to say that we have gone from a position in our culture where we were kind of the leaders and the drivers of our culture to a position of exile. We're on the margins of society now. And where the tectonic plates used to be able to coexist together and, and there was sometimes friction, now there's almost constant friction. And we're seeing it result in all sorts of earthquakes and eruptions across our culture as people try to figure out how to navigate these massive shifts. And if you're here today as a follower of the church, I think the question for us as followers of Jesus and as people in the church is how do we navigate these shifts? Because many of us remember what it was like to be in the majority culture. And now we're having to navigate what it means to be a minority where our views and our beliefs are not just seen as, as something that that is weird or different, but actually potentially dangerous to the secular view of human flourishing. How do we exist and live and flourish in exile? I don't know if you resonate with these shifts, but as I've been thinking about the church this week, as we close this series on the essentials, I think what we have before us today is a call to see what Waterstone can become in order to become a church that embodies the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In the midst of these shifts, we are called to be a place of renewal and restoration, to see the ways that Christ's kingdom can break in to our cultural moment. If we live faithfully, And if we're going to have an impact on the world, these are the things that we must become as a church because the church must be better. We must do better. And so to to cast vision for what I think the church can be, I want to turn to a book um, in 1 Peter, a letter from the Apostle Peter, who was one of the closest followers of Jesus, who wrote to a church who was in exile. That was experiencing a lot of the stigma and slander that we experience today. And I think there are three things that he kind of lays out in this book that can call us to what we can be as a church in exile. Because I believe this, 
that when the church enters exile, it's not just called simply to survive, but to thrive. I deeply believe that that when we experience exile, the church does not lose its identity, but it rediscovers and reclaims what it has always been called to be. What if this cultural moment is a, a call to renewal and rebirth for the church? And so to begin, I think for the church to thrive in exile, we need to rediscover our identity as a community of holiness in a culture of hedonism. If you look at our culture today, our culture is fixated on the pursuit of happiness and pleasure and self-indulgence. I think in Galatians 5, Paul outlines what a culture of hedonism looks like as he talks about the the acts of the flesh, as people pursue their sinful desires and and the desires of their hearts and the flesh. And this is what he says, and I want you to notice the parallels to our own culture and our own communities. Paul begins and he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Does that not sound like our culture of dating and hookups? and tender. He goes on and he says, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Have you watched cable news in the past week at all, right? Have you spent any time on Twitter? I mean, people are angry. There's discord everywhere. He goes on and says, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Thankfully, our, our politics and our workplaces have nothing to do with dissensions or factions or disagreements, right? I mean, we just all get along in, the, in that realm. He goes on and he says, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, which none of us have ever seen any of that on Netflix or HBO miniseries. I mean, it's all over our entertainment as a culture. And in this culture of hedonism, we live in a culture that idolizes the self and tells us the best thing for you is to pursue what will make you happy, to pursue the things that that will fulfill you and give you pleasure and and satisfy yourself. We've made the idol of self the ultimate, and, and moral absolutes have all been put into question. As Elliot said last week, we've taken the moral price tag off pretty much everything. And I think the temptation for the church in a culture of hedonism is a temptation to assimilate. A temptation to just kind of shift our boundaries and our beliefs and to assimilate to the culture's view. I think so many of us, we've been indoctrinated into this view of worship of self and we put God's stamp of approval on it and we say, I'm just going to pursue the things that make me happy and that fulfill me and that give me pleasure because that's what God wants for me. And we assimilate and we shift the boundaries and the, and the, the rules and the, the guidelines that God has given us, the structures that he's put in place that he says are key to human flourishing. And we've just assimilated with our cultural worldview and we come up with some sort of, of blend between their views and our views, their morals and our morals, where we're not really faithful to anything. But Peter, in his letter to the church in exile, calls us not to assimilate but to differentiate as a church. This is what he says in 1 Peter 1 as he calls us to a community of holiness. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, 
Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Does anyone know what the word holy means? I'm sure many of you do. Feel free to shout it out. What does the word holy mean? Set apart, separate, unique, different. The call of the church is not to live like the world, but to live separate and unique and differently from the world. That as we are a holy community, it affects every aspect of our lives. And so we live in holiness and how we relate to our time, our money, our positions of power, our sexuality, our morality. All of those places in our lives shift drastically when Christ's mercy and grace has come upon us. And when we are a community of holiness, we will look drastically different from the world that we are surrounded by, the culture that we are in. We don't assimilate to that culture. We are holy and set apart from that culture. And we do that in pursuit of Jesus. We talk a lot at Waterstone about the, the role of the church is to become like Jesus. That, that means that we pursue Jesus with all that we are, that we take on the mind of Christ, that we become more like Jesus. When we gather together in the context of the church, it's not just for a transfer of information. It's not just so that your small group leader, your teacher, or even your pastor can just give you the right answers to the test so that you can get into heaven. The gathering of believers, the church, is not about information but spiritual formation. That as we come together and talk about things like doctrine and belief and who Christ has called us to be, we come together to become more like Jesus, to be holy as the one who has called us is holy. And it's not that doctrine doesn't matter. It does. That's why we're doing a series on the essential beliefs of our faith. But it's not for the right answers. It's because what we believe, what we think of God, shapes who we become. And if we want to be a community of holiness, we have to pursue Jesus and actually think like Jesus. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to die to self. Jesus says, follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow me. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to a thousand other things that call on our hearts and minds. In a culture of hedonism, it can be hard to know what's morally right and what, what is the call to follow Jesus. And yet we are called to faithful living in our culture, a culture of holiness, a community of holiness, and a culture of hedonism, which sounds incredibly foreign when you're living in exile and everything in our culture is telling us to pursue the self, to care for the self, to love yourself, to do what makes you happy and works for you. Everything in our culture is about self-fulfillment and not self-denial. But if we are to rediscover our identity in exile, we have to become a church committed, a community committed to holiness in a culture of hedonism. But one of the unique things about our culture is that, that we're not just a culture of, of holiness that excludes other people. And we're not, a, as we're set apart, we don't exclude others from our community. We are actually a community of inclusion and a culture of exclusion. 
I talked about this before, but many of us have experienced this, this maybe in your workplaces or your families or in your, your schools where you feel excluded because of your belief systems. We live in a culture where if you disagree with someone's definitions of good and, and happiness, then you are not just wrong, you are a threat to their goodness and their happiness. And so we can be excluded from the cultural conversation. And the challenge for us, I think the temptation for us is that when we feel that exclusion, because we have been in the majority, we feel this pull, this drag to fight fire with fire, to push back against the exclusion. Well, if you exclude us, then we'll just exclude you. One of my favorite authors, Ronald Rollheiser, he says this about the church. He says, why do you and I, sincere religious people, not look like Jesus. We can be arrogant where we should be humble, judgmental where we should be forgiving, hateful where we should be loving, self-concerned where we should be altruistic, and not least spiteful and vicious where we should be understanding and merciful. Our lives and our churches don't radiate Jesus. May that not be true of Waterstone in our community. You see, for the struggle for us living in exile is to live in, in a torn and divided and polarized community as wounded people who have been hurt by those polarizations and those divisions and not contribute to them, to not enter those spaces with bitterness and resentment, but with healing and with love and with inclusion. The church is the space that loves one another deeply and invites everyone to the table of Jesus Christ. We are a community of inclusion and a culture of exclusion. This is what Peter says about how we're supposed to do that. He says, now that you have been, oh, do we have that? Sorry. Now that we, you have purified yourself, so now that you have been committed to holiness by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter says that a community of holiness is a community that loves one another deeply from the heart. He goes on to say that, that we're not just a community of, of imperishable seed, but, but, or of, of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. And what he's saying there is, is that the community of believers, that we are family, that, that when we are born again, we are not just born into a new relationship with God, but into a new family, a new community, a new people. And, and I hate to tell you this, but you don't get to choose who is in your family. It's true of the one you were born into, and it's the, the true of the one that you are, are born again into. You don't get to choose who sits next to you on a Sunday morning and sings songs next to you based on who they voted for or, or, or how they spend their money or how they spend their time. The community of believers transcends the divisions and the polarizations. Because we are a new family bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, coming together around the essential beliefs that Christ has called us to. One of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, uh, he was once asked about this kind of growing movement of backyard churches. 
and um, a, a pastor was asking him what he thought about backyard churches, and it's basically the idea that, that people are, are kind of disillusioned, frustrated with the church, and don't want to participate in the larger community, and so they choose to do church in their backyards, usually around a fire pit and bourbon is, is kind of the, the movement, and just to be frank. It sounds like a good time, and, and talking about Jesus with fire and bourbon, great. And Eugene Peterson reiterates, he says, yes. The, the community of Christ is always about fellowship and, and table fellowship and community of, of small gathering of people coming together. But then he thought for a moment and he paused. And he said, my one concern, my concern is, is there room around the fire pit for those who you don't want to be there? Because you see, one of the things the church forces us to do is, is not just choose the people that we want to be in community with. It forces us to be in proximity with and rub shoulders with people who, who deeply disagree with us on secondary issues. And yet it calls us to be in community with one another. We don't get to choose who is in our family and who's outside. We don't get to choose who's excluded and who's included because Christ has invited all and include it all. And so what if we became a community that no matter your background or your walk of, of life or your belief system or your ethnicity or your economic background, you were invited to participate in the community in the body of Christ because all are welcome at the table of Jesus Christ. And the second thing I'll say about that is this is that I think there's a temptation, especially before some of the shifts that happen in culture, for us to participate in church as consumers. That, that we simply came to the church that best fit our needs and that best fed us and that had the best programs for our kids and the best programs for our marriages, and, and we just kind of consumed a place. And I think that worked for many of us for a long time. But I think the challenge for the church in the future is that we are not called to consume a place, but to covenant to a people. Covenant has the idea of marriage, a deep commitment, not to just the, the place that, that most fills and satisfies our needs, but that, that is a community that we belong deeply to, that we give ourselves to. When you think of, of that term covenant and, and marriage, you don't divorce someone just because they vote differently than you. At least I hope not. Why do we divorce our churches? You see, as we move into a future as the minority where we are excluded, we have to be a place of deep ties and fellowship that come together to encounter the presence of God together. And my fear for you is that if you just kind of waffle between places, whatever's best for you, is that you'll just be battered about by whatever cultural shifts come your way. I'm not saying you have to covenant here. And the other thing I would say about covenanting to a people and not consuming the places that in Scripture, it tells us there are reasons to leave in marriage. Abuse and unfaithfulness. If you feel like you are a part of a church that is abusive, get out. If you feel like you are a part of a church that is unfaithful to the core beliefs of Christianity, get out. 
Call churches to accountability. But don't divorce because of the secondary things. And finally, I think what Peter calls us to is to be a community of order in a culture of chaos. Maybe I'm making an assumption about your life, but my life has felt very chaotic the last few years. Anyone resonate with that? Thank you. All right, few of you, appreciate it. Very chaotic. Things have just shifted and moved at a rapid pace. It's been difficult, and, and our culture is, is just playing with and manipulating and, and deconstructing all sort of no, notions and truths that we have always held to be true. And we're radically messing with definitions and, and cultural norms, and in the midst of that, chaos is happening, and no one knows how to navigate the waters. And I think in a culture of chaos that, that's rapidly disintegrating, the question for us is, are we ready to step in as a culture of order and stability in a culture of chaos? See, I think the temptation for us when we see the rapid shifts in cultures is to, to just kind of follow the anxiety of our day. People are highly, highly anxious in our world today because things have changed and are chaotic and they don't know what to hold on to. But what if we as the community of Christ we're a community of order and stability in the midst of the chaos because we have an anchor that's deeper than the cultural shifts that we might be experiencing. This is what Peter says about this kind of community. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice all of the different ways that we organize ourselves as a society. Peter says that's true of the church and the community of believers. He says, you are God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he goes on to say, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live such good lives among those who don't believe, that though they're threatened by our worldview, that though they, they feel like what we have to say goes against the secular view of human flourishing, that they would see the goodness in who God has called us to be and they would glorify him. A culture of stability, a people organized, a community organized, a holy nation and priesthood living out faithfully to God in a culture of chaos. You may be asking, well, what does it mean to organize? What does it mean to be ordered? What does it mean to be stable? Well, I think it, it's two things. And the first is this. We are a community of people who organize ourselves, who order our lives around the ritual of gathering together as the church. A, a royal priesthood is a, is a people who come together for the focus and purpose of worshiping God together in community with one another. 
In a world of chaos and confusion, we use the weekly rhythm of gathering together to worship God because we need the recentering. We need the re-anchoring in a secular culture that is sending us message after message after message telling us to pursue self. We need the reminder of coming together in small groups and in classes and in worship together. Every time I come into this room, I am reminded of the fact that I am not alone in the world as a follower of Jesus Christ. That we are a community of believers pursuing him together. And beyond that, when we gather together, you know, there's a temptation in Colorado to pursue Jesus in the mountains or on the slopes or camping or hiking or biking or paddleboarding. And you can absolutely encounter God anywhere in the world. His presence is everywhere. And we are lucky and fortunate enough to live in one of the most beautiful places in the world where we can encounter God's presence. But do not mistake that for church. You can encounter God's presence in the mountains, but you cannot experience church in the mountains. See, what the New Testament tells us is that when we gather together as the body of believers, that God's presence is uniquely with us. When we gather together in worship and in scripture and in small group and in in gathering together as the body of Christ, the New Testament tells us that God's power and presence and personhood is uniquely with us in a way that we desperately need in a world that is, is drastically trying to remove God from the picture of our lives. When we come together, we encounter God's presence. When we talk about gathering together as a church, it it is certainly nothing less than gathering together in this room or on a Saturday night in the activity center to worship God and experience his presence and his personhood and his power. But John Mark Comer, he he kind of finishes his book by this statement. While while we gather together, we also have to understand that it's, it's also more than Sunday services. He says this, but while the church is not less than the Sunday services, it is far more. It must be more to survive the Western spiritual apocalypse. Church must become a thick web of interdependent relationships between resilient disciples of Jesus, deeply loyal to his ways. We must move beyond Sunday services and a network of loose ties to become a robust counterculture, not against the world but for the world. See, I had a conversation uh, with a friend this week, and he's a, a person who's been in ministry for a long time. He's now in the business world. He's been a mentor and a friend and someone I, I get together with regularly to talk about the church and to talk about culture and, and the shifting tides and, and what we as the church can do. And in our conversation uh, two weeks ago at lunch, he just mentioned to me that, that he's worried about the state of the church and the future of the church. And his concern was not unfounded. His concern was that he he fears that Christians are not prepared for what's coming. That we have not been discipled robustly enough, that, that our faith is not deep enough to stand the shifts of culture that we're facing. And I don't know what it was in this moment. I don't know if it was because I was writing a sermon on the church or I've been thinking about it, or, but, but I had a moment of clarity, which is rare for me, and it's a moment that, that I often don't even believe myself. But my response was, I, I, I'm not worried. 
I'm not worried because the church in exile has not only survived, but it has always thrived. That we have not lost our identity in exile, but we always, always rediscover it. That though day to day it can feel like we are losing and that the shifts of culture are are disintegrating the culture around us, that it can feel like we live in a culture of death and denial. When it feels like our discipleship is failing and our faith is not as deep as it should be, I'm reminded of the fact that we serve a God of resurrection. That with our God, every moment is pregnant with the possibility of new life and rebirth. That the brokenness and the wounding that happens in our church can be redeemed because of a God of resurrection. that we do not experience the heartache and the wounding that the community of God can do in vain. That God is bigger than our sins and our faults and our failures. Many of you carry the wounds of the community of God and God sees that, knows that, loves you through it, what if in this moment, this cultural moment where we are experiencing these shifts, it is not the death of the church, but the rebirth? What if God is doing something new? What if he is renewing us as a people, as a community of holiness and inclusion and order to take the good news of who Jesus is to the world? And so to wrap up this series on essentials, we're going to do two things today. And I thought it appropriate in light of the events of the the last week to to begin by um, to affirming our commitment to the church through saying the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, Affirming the essential beliefs that have always held the church together for the last thousand years. When you think of that, it's held the church together through, through moments of exile. And also moments where the church has been brutal, like the Crusades. That no matter how high or how low, these are the things that hold us together. No matter what we face, these are the things that we can affirm about what it means to follow Jesus as the community of faith. And then after we say the Apostles' Creed, we're going to finish one last time with the doxology. And so I'd encourage you to stand now and pray with me. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.